Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues crucial to the health of the American West. West Obsessed is a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF Community Radio in Peonia, Colorado. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to talk about wolf genetics and how they play a part in attempts to save the Mexican wolf in the American Southwest. To help me talk about this, I've got two contributing editors to the magazine, Callie Carswell, who just finished reporting a feature on Mexican wolves, and Sarah Gilman, who edited the story. Hi, Callie. Hi there. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Brian. Welcome, both of you, to the show. So, Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> we've just um, put the finishing touches on the latest <laughs> issue of the magazine. Um, the cover story is about wolves and people and the missteps that are really contributing to the endangerment of Mexican wolves. But I think to understand the story, we need to understand what wolves exactly we're talking about. So, Callie, maybe you could just describe the Mexican wolf, um, tell us what it is, where it comes from, and how it compares to the typical wolf many of us think of in the West. Sure. Um, so, Mexican wolves live in the southwestern United States, and um, there are a couple in Mexico as well. So currently they um, are in the wild in Arizona and New Mexico primarily, and they are pretty similar to typical wolves. So wolves that you would find in Montana, Idaho, the Northwest, we call those kind of Northern Rockies wolves. Uh, there's also a large wolf population in the Great Lakes in the Midwest. Um, these wolves are a subspecies of gray wolf. Uh, so Gray wolf is the species for all of these different populations. And then there's different subspecies, which means they're just slightly different wolves. Uh, in the Southwest, they're kind of characterized by being smaller than the wolves in the Northern Rockies. Um, they also have a particular kind of coloring. They have this kind of mottled coat with gray and white and a sort of cinnamon auburn color. Um, so none of the all white or all black wolves, uh, that you would see in Montana, for instance. Hmm. And that's interesting that these are, um, a subspecies cause it just gets us right into the talk of genetics, which is kind of at the heart of the story, which is what makes it so interesting, I think. But, um, in your story, you report on a, a certain band of wolves that you call dangerously inbred and desperate for new blood. What does that mean? So that means that, um, there is a population of wild wolves in New Mexico and Arizona that is there uh, because of the Endangered Species Act and because the federal government decided in the late 90s to try to restore wolves to the wild here. We had shot and poisoned them to extinction, so there weren't any left. So they had to bring them back. Um, that was tough to do because there weren't many left. Um, they they did sort of create an opportunity to do it, um, but for a number of reasons, which we'll probably talk about, um, they have they've run up against a lot of obstacles, and one of the results is that the wolves in this wild population in Arizona and New Mexico are all very very highly related to each other at this point. Um, so they are as related as you, Brian, are to your sister at a genetic level. Um, that doesn't mean that they are actually all siblings, um, but it means there is basically very little genetic diversity um, 
among them, which genetic diversity, you could kind of think of it as one of the important building blocks of life. Um, you, you probably know that you're not supposed to have babies with your sister and <laughs> that is because of your genes. Presumably, <laughs> yes, presumably. <laughs> presumably you might not. One hopes. <laughs> um, so, you know, wolves are mammals just like us. So ideally for them, um, they don't want to do that either, but they don't really have much of a choice right now. Yeah, and there's an interesting part of that. I think, um, Sarah, we've talked about this a little bit, but uh, in terms of this is a conservation story. And so it's sort of like at the very bottom of the barrel for conservation, and, and that is um, that is genetics. And, and, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that sort of informed the way you guys went about uh, telling this story. Yeah, I mean, first, just to say, you know, I mean, one of the reasons why gen genetic variation is so important is because it basically is insurance against random disaster. Um, so, you know, if you have like an outbreak of disease, for example, if you have a big, healthy, genetically diverse population, there may be a number of individuals who have a combination of genes that confers them some resistance to that disease. As you lose variation, you lose those options to deal with those things. And that's where the Mexican wolf population stands. And I think that this is a really interesting example of, so any conservation effort is a whole combination of different factors, right? You have, you have the biological aspect, which is the animals themselves. Like what do they need? Uh, do they have habitat? Um, are there enough of them? All these things. Do they have connectivity between different habitats so they can move in bad weather or yeah, access to the resources they need? Then you have the human element of conservation, which is how do you build up social acceptance? How do you, um, how do you make sure that people aren't still a threat to these things? Um, and how do you make sure that, that uh, efforts to conserve species have enough traction to continue into the future and whether, you know, the swings of administrations or, or whatnot, because even though the law requires that these species be protected on some level and recovered, the, the efforts put in by the federal government to do so can vary wildly with administration. So ensuring that kind of thing. Um, but the bottom line, in order to have a, a viable population of animals, you have to have enough of them that they, they actually can persist. So if you don't, if you don't have enough individuals and enough genetic variation, then you're kind of skunked, no matter if you have the social acceptance to make it happen, no matter if you have all these other things. Like, this is kind of the foundation. You have to have this first. And this is such an interesting story to me because, you know, I mean, especially for HCN, we report a lot on collaboration and the importance of social license and, and trying to find ways through these sort of um, diametrically opposed battles where you have these camps, environmentalists versus ranchers, X versus Y. Um, and that's really important. Um, and I think this story actually shows the limits of that uh, in the sense that the feds and, and biologists in general had, they, they took this really terrible situation where they had only seven wolves that they could breed and they built an opportunity to recover the species from that through very careful breeding and genetic um, through genetic analysis, not manipulation. This isn't the same as GMO. Um, but, uh, and then that collided with the politics and, and this opportunity, this window that they created from almost nothing is closing now because the politics have gotten so difficult uh, and because they, they gave maybe a little too much right when they needed to be more assertive about what this population needed to expand because there was, it needs to grow fast from a very small number of individuals to minimize the loss of diversity. Right. So yeah. that's why it's interesting to me. Um, 
to be to be clear, yes, we aren't talking about um, genetically modified super wolves <laughs> in the mountains of no. New Mexico <laughs> running wild um, thanks to some mad scientists at U.S. Fish and Wildlife. That is not what we're talking about. Specially engineered to fly over border walls. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. right, and just be invisible. Um, yeah, maybe there are thousands of these wolves. They're just um, genetically invisible. invisible. <laughs> um, I don't think that's where we're at yet. But I, I do think that this is uh, it is a really important story in terms of understanding. Um, you know, we do have a um, enacted legislated value in the Endangered Species Act to conserve certain species like this one. And that runs into all kinds of problems on the ground. Um, we'll get a little bit more into the nitty gritty, I think a little bit later on the genetic side of things, cause there's some interesting stuff in there. Um, but I, I, I did want to say that there's this interesting line, uh, in the story, Callie, where you say, you know, biologists often say that restoring wolves to their former territory is less about wolves than about people. And I wonder if you could sort of elucidate on that a little bit. What, what did you mean by that? And where does that sort of leave us in, in this in this wolf thing? And, and how there are and also I just want to say there's how many wolves right now of this subspecies? Um, there's about a hundred in the US. Um, in, the and wilds, in the wilds. In the wilds, yeah. There's a I think around three hundred in captivity. There's there's quite a bit more in captivity, but um, yeah, about a hundred in the wilds in the US. And um, what that thing about wolves and people means is that so this is something that a number of wolf biologists told me they told me that biologically speaking wolves are maybe one of the easiest endangered species to recover um that is because they are uh what biologists call ecological generalists so if you give them animals to prey on and if they have water to drink they can survive in lots of different places. Um, so wolves at one point uh, lived from the Arctic down to central Mexico. They lived all over the continental United States. Um, they're really not very particular about where they are. Um, in, in some ways, you could say that wolves are kind of like us in this respect. They're very adaptable. Um, so if you basically just have a place that you can put them where they have things to eat, they will populate it. They sometimes prey on cattle and sheep. That was the main reason that we exterminated them there. You know, there's also just a lot of psychology around wolves on both sides of this issue. Um, people have a sort of deep spiritual love for wolves and some people have a deep resentful hate for wolves um so they are an animal that just tends to cause a lot of human drama that's right and again i think in this this particular case um sarah maybe you could speak to this but that's sort of the u.s fish and wildlife who are um you know trying to do the conservation efforts here um they really kind of took us took a stand here uh, against humans in a way but how did that work out um well i mean so in the in the past the u.s fish and wildlife and i think you can see this actually a lot in recent endangered species decisions as well is to work really closely with the states in part because states as a general rule are charged with um managing the wildlife within their borders so any animal that's not endangered is in state purview, especially if it's hunted, um, 
then the state is managing it. So in general, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife really works with state biologists as partners. Um, but those interactions can get very politically fraught. Um, and game commissions in particular tend to be politically appointed, um, often people who don't necessarily have much expertise um, in biology or or even in politics and maybe have more of an agenda. And so sometimes what can happen with the collaboration is it can get derailed by, you know, this sort of intense infights. Um, and, and I think uh, in this particular case, um, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, uh, it, it kind of capitulated a lot, I think, um, and not for bad reasons. I think in other places, you know, it, it had worked out well for them maybe to, to do so, but it did not work out well here in the Southwest. And um, so the outcome is that they, um, they decided um, just last year that they, there are two things that happened, and Kelly can talk more about this, um, in uh, the early 2000s, was it 2003, Callie? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, so when they decided to recover Mexican wolves and then start reintroducing them to the Southwest, they made a couple of political concessions. Um, one was that uh, they wouldn't release them directly into New Mexico. Um, they would release them only in Arizona because New Mexico didn't want them to be released. So that left a pretty small area for them to be released in. Um, and wolves are territorial. So that can get crowded and conflicted. And then the second thing they did in 2003 was form this committee um, in cooperation with the states uh, and um, county representatives and things like that, uh, that would help with management and make management direction clear um, and make local people who are dealing with wolves, um, who were grazing cattle a lot uh, down this part of New Mexico and Arizona, feel more like they were being heard. Um, and those, those two concessions ended up kind of flummoxing this opportunity that Fish and Wildlife built uh, to build the population very rapidly. Um, and in 2015, Fish and Wildlife kind of took a stand when um, and, and decided to rewrite the rules so that it could reintroduce wolves directly to New Mexico. Um, and and also it had ended this, this committee in 2009 in response to a lawsuit. So those two things, um, it's it pretty significant for the agency to say, look, we, in order to meet our obligation under the law, we actually can't cooperate with you anymore on this level. And they still tried to say, hey, look, we want your blessing. We need permits, et cetera. And they went after it. They didn't get them. And so Dan Ash, who's the director, was like, well, we have a law to obey. And so they tried to go ahead and do it anyway. Um, and then unfortunately in June, they were stopped uh, by a federal judge after New Mexico sued. Um, so there's a preliminary injunction against the federal government right now that prevents them from releasing any new captive wolves in New Mexico. Um, and so far it's unclear whether they'd appeal. So it kind of shows the limits of, of federal authority in a way. And part, I think it's because it's an experimental non-essential population. So they don't have as much power as they would have with, a, with just an endangered population. Is that right, Kelly? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, they're in this impasse. So they took this, this stand, which is pretty bold for the federal government. There's a wildlife advocate that Kelly quotes, who used to be the head of the, of the wolf recovery program. And now is a wolf advocate who said that since he was hired for the wolf recovery program job in 1990, he'd never seen the agency take that kind of stand. So it was pretty significant. Um, yeah, so I, th I think it's it's safe to say that there's, there's this really interesting intersection here between super complicated 
politics and policies on conservation and fairly complicated um, genetics and science and research and stuff. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, If you're just uh, joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed. This is where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues that are important to the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of the magazine. I'm here with two contributing editors, Callie Carswell and Sarah Gilman. We're talking about uh, wolf genetics, basically, and wolf recovery efforts in the um, uh, southwestern United States. Um, I wanted to kind of back up and just just talk about maybe, Callie, just this weird intersection, and, and especially this lawsuit. So there's this, in order to get enough genes into the gene pool and into the wild, they need to get more basically wolves into these areas and that's yeah. just not happening right now. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, just, just backing up a second. Um, you know, we were talking about in wolf recovery, usually wolves are easy and people are at the thing that is hard. Um, in the case of Mexican wolves, that actually wasn't totally true. It was definitely true that the human side has been difficult, but the wolves in this case were actually their own problem because there were so few of them left. Um, so, you know, from a genetic perspective, it's kind of a fragile thing to try to rebuild a whole wild population that can take care of itself, which is the ultimate goal of the Endangered Species Act. Um, when you're starting with so few animals, um, just seven of them. So, so that was really the first challenge that had to be overcome. Um, partially it was overcome by finding some additional wolves in uh, some zoos. So that is how they got to the seven number in the first place. Um, in the wilds, they sent a trapper down to Mexico to try to capture wolves uh, to start this captive breeding program. And he only caught five Um four of them he caught in a group so some of them were related um so there were really only three individuals overall that he could find that were not related to each other um so that was an issue then they found eventually four more wolves that were uh being kept in zoos um that were also very inbred but they weren't related to these other wolves so Um, sort of an interesting thing about inbreeding is if you are very inbred uh, and then you mate with someone else who's very inbred, the kids that you make, as long as you two aren't related to each other, actually won't be inbred at all. Um, So that was kind of the big, um, the big opportunity that they had um, was they were able to produce some wolves that um, were not inbred Uh, That means that those wolves had uh, what geneticists would call higher fitness. So, you know, everyone knows about Darwin, survival of the fittest. Basically, it means that they are more likely to be able to go out there and succeed by having babies. Yeah, so there's an interesting thing that happens inside of those those genetics, which is because of the randomness of genetics, uh, you just lose crucial genes. Um, I think Sarah talked about this a little bit, but uh, sort of how does that work? You just, you lose genes that could have prevented you from being sick or you, or or make you more fit. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So there's all of these potential problems with small populations and losing rare genes is one of them. So kind of faced with the, faced with this situation, um, what 
the scientists I talked to told me was that I do, like in a perfect world, what you would want to do is you would want to um, put some of these genetically valuable wolves that weren't inbred or weren't very inbred out there when the population was still small um, and they could be the ones who kind of shaped it. Um, and then you would want from there the population to grow really quickly. And the reason for that is, um, is that you basically want to slow the rate of gene loss. Um, so in a small population, every time uh, parents breed, they only pass on half of their genes to each of their offspring. And that just happens randomly. It's like flipping a coin. Um, so with every breeding event, basically you're gonna lose some genetic variation probably. Um, so the first thing you're likely to lose is rare genes. And then as time goes on, you're also going to be more likely to lose more common genes. And that's important because of the reasons we talked about earlier is just, you never know when you might need that rare gene. You know, maybe that rare gene is the thing that makes some wolves um, not be affected by parvovirus. So parvovirus right. is one of the things that your dog gets vaccinated against. Um, wolves can also get it. So if there's like an epidemic that sweeps through, um, if you don't have any of those genes, then you might lose a lot more wolves than you would lose otherwise. Um, and that's also true of the population. Oh. Dog. <laughs> Google. Hey. Get, not everyone likes not every dog likes to hear about the parvovirus so we apologize to your dog google um hey stop okay okay we won't we won't talk about um, the parvovirus yeah anymore. anyway so it, it's just that insurance thing basically like if if you want to up your odds that you're going to survive you want to be able to keep as much of those rare genes oh. as you can now, inside this research of these wolves, with these uh, conservationists, how many like real super duper geneticists are there? Sort of, what's the level of research and science that's going into this? Um, yeah, so it's been a little bit variable over the years, but um, they Fish and Wildlife has somewhat consistently had a team of um, independent scientists. Uh, so those are scientists who aren't employed by fish and wildlife, but have expertise in different areas that they kind of consult on what they call recovery planning, which is essentially uh, them figuring out what the best way for them to um, recover this species from possible extinction is. Um, so there was a lot of research in the 1990s um, on the genetic genetics of the wolves, mainly when they were looking for more animals that they might be able to breed with. So they found these wolves in zoos and um, first they had to figure out if they were actually Mexican wolves. Um, a lot of people suspected that they had at some point been bred with dogs. Um, so they thought they were wolf dog hybrids. And if that was true, they definitely could not use them um, for this endangered species program. Um, so they did some genetic analysis that um, enabled them to show that they weren't 
hybrids. They were actually pure Mexican wolves. So that was kind of a first step of the research. Um, from there, uh, there are a couple geneticists who have been following this pretty consistently over the years and studying uh, inbreeding in the captive population of wolves. So one thing they're always looking for is if there is a discernible effect from the inbreeding. So like if you can see that it's having bad consequences for the wolves, um, some of the things they look for are, you know, we talked about having babies is really important to your success as a wolf. So um, they look at the size of the litters that the wolves have. So if they have, uh, if they consistently have litters of seven pups, um, that probably means they're more fit than if they consistently have litters of four pups or two pups, or maybe they don't seem to be that successful at having pups at all. Um, so they've looked at stuff like that. Um, and they are also always like running numbers on these things that they like to talk about, like inbreeding coefficients and mean kinship. Um, that's kind of how scientists go about looking at how serious these problems are. So you've got a lot of fairly smart people trying to get these wolves to recover, and you've got some fairly complicated uh, human affairs in the way. What needs to happen, do you think, for the wolves to recover this population? Is it even possible? Um, I think it is possible. Uh, you know, it's really hard to answer that question simply. Um, I mean, you know, biologists or geneticists could answer it somewhat simply if people weren't in the picture, but people are in the picture. Um, and people constrain what you can ultimately do. So, uh, you know, what the geneticists say is that um, what needs to happen is they need to be able to release more wolves from the captive population that have valuable genes and that also are not related to the wolves in the wild. Um, so, and you that's know, what the injunction is preventing that. Yes, they can't, they can't do that at the moment um, in New Mexico, which is where they really need to do it. Um, you know, I, I talked to a geneticist who also thinks they need to remove, like selectively remove wolves from the wild who are super related to all of the other ones. And if they breed, they're basically going to make the situation worse. Um, right. So there's kind of is, like toxic individuals out there in a way. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not helpful. They're kind of working against you if they have babies. Releasing wolves tends to be controversial um, among ranchers or other people who live in communities uh, at the edge of the national forest where the wolves are living um, and where they would be released. Um, one reason is that, you know, when these wolves come out of captivity, they have been born and raised in a pen where they have been fed um, sawed off legs of roadkill elk and these things that they call carnivore, carnivore logs, which are, um, it's basically like, chopped horse meat and they make it for carnivores that live in zoos um so also they feed the wolves in this captive breeding program that so they've you know they've never really had to work for a meal like these wolves don't they've never had to hunt an elk and we put them out there in the wild and they have to learn how to do that um 
that it's kind of hard to predict how they react to that situation. So some of them, some of them learn really quickly and um, they seem to maintain their kind of instinctual natural fear of humans pretty well. They don't really hang around people that much. Um, Others don't like they have been known to show up uh, at hunters campsites I think one of them once stole an elk head from a hunter's campsite. Um, they've showed up in communities and kind of fought through fences with dogs, um, sometimes attacked people's dogs. Uh, and then there are kind of the more predictable potential conflicts with uh, wolves killing cows. So um, so that, that's another sort of challenge to this wolf population. Um and, you know, that, that is sort of, those are kind of the limit, the human limits on um, what you can do to release wolves. The, mm-hmm. the idea of removing wolves from the wild is controversial for the opposite reason. Um, environmentalists who are really in favor of there being more wild wolves in the Southwest are extremely skeptical of that idea. Um, one of the reasons we got into this situation in the first place is that uh, one of the compromises that Fish and Wildlife made early on was, um, well, actually in 2005, they instituted this rule that was basically a three strikes rule. So if wolves killed um, three cows in a 365 day period, they would be removed from the wild permanently. Um, that resulted in a lot of removals that left this one very successful at having babies, Wolf, out on the landscape, um, created a lot of space for her offspring to move into and make territory. Um, And basically the wolves that are out there today are, most of them are related to her, um, which is the inbreeding problem we talked about earlier. So, you know, because of that history with removals, um, a lot of wolf advocates are... Uh, very suspicious of any any proposal that comes from Fish and Wildlife to take wolves out of the wild. Um, so it's complicated. Yeah, to say the least. Um, I, I really like the idea of um, some wolves were just running around asking, where are the carnivore logs? Hey, <laughs> I don't hey, understand. Guys. This used to be a lot easier. So, oh, great. Well, I think that's actually a good place to stop because we're kind of yeah. run out of time here, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, we are following this story. If you want to learn more about the Mexican Wolf Recovery Program, you can visit the High Country News website at hcn.org. Uh, there's a lot to explore there. Uh, you've been listening to West Obsessed. This is a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF in Paonia, Colorado. Today we've been speaking with contributing editors Callie Carswell and Sarah Gilman. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. Uh, For West Obsessed, I'm Brian Calvert. Thank you for listening. 